Okay, Jesse, last week's fall from grace, or was it space, was a doozy. What's the story this time around? A compassionate and kind high school junior is the target of a jealousy-induced campaign of bullying and violence after she briefly dates the wrong boy. When she's found by her mother, brutally murdered, it seems pretty clear-cut who the killer is. Until shocking allegations rise to the surface, calling into question the entire investigation and local justice system. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about terror, tragedy, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we're so excited, as always, this week to welcome and shout out a new set of absolutely incredible patrons. Welcome to Lee W. and Diane D. And Brianna S. and Karen W. Alexis H. and Sydney T. And Gretchen C. and Ashley T. Welcome, everyone. Also, thanks everyone for all of your wonderful birthday messages. Yes, to Andy. thank you guys. It was such a special day with all of your little happy wishes, and thank you for all the love, Jesse. <laughs> I know. I think I was more excited that people were liking and commenting on it than Andy even was. She was like actually having a birthday with her family, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like 400 people have liked it. Look at this nice comment. She's like, uh huh. Okay, thank you. <laughs> no, I definitely will spend some time decompressing today and checking them out. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was very sweet. You guys are the best. But what is not the best is today's episode. It is brutal, which I did warn you guys. I warned you last week that this one was going to be a hard pill to swallow. And it is, but it's an important story. And whenever we have kind of a rougher story that involves younger people or maybe sexual assault, I always try to tell it only because there is a reason and there's a lesson to be learned from what happened. So that's what we're talking about today. And we are going to jump right into it. I mean, we're getting right to the nitty gritty right away. So I do want to trigger warn everyone that there is going to be a graphic minor death. It's a teenager. And there will be sexual assault a couple times, which I will always give you guys a little heads up before we discuss it. So without further ado, we are going to jump right into this scene that is every mother's, every parent's worst nightmare. 40-year-old Hazel Show was annoyed. Only the day before, December 19, 1991, she had received a phone call from the high school guidance counselor about her 16-year-old daughter, Lori. The counselor, Mrs. Cooper, had been vague about some sort of issue with Lori and insisted upon an early morning meeting, calling back to even change the time from 7.30 to 7 a.m., Lori was a good kid. She had gotten mixed up with a bad crowd a little while ago, 
But she had left that group. Lori worked hard. She confided in her mom. She had direction and compassion. Lori was equally mystified why Mrs. Cooper would need to see her mother. Now, as the clock ticked past 7 to 7.05 and then 7.06, Hazel was irritated. Mrs. Cooper wasn't showing up for this meeting. Mm. She was a generally pretty patient woman, and she normally would extend even up to 30 minutes of a grace period. But something was not sitting right for her. There was just something wrong she could tell, and something in her gut said, you got to leave, you got to get back home. So when her watch hit 7.07 and Mrs. Cooper had still yet to materialize, Heather took off with unexplained urgency. Something nagged at her to drive faster, and she miraculously made every traffic light on the seven-mile journey back to the condo she shared with her daughter. As Hazel stepped out of the car and towards the door, her neighbor stopped her and said, Is something wrong? We heard a loud commotion upstairs. Hazel frowned and said she didn't think so, and rushed upstairs to the unit. She found the lights on, and as she was kind of sweeping into the apartment, her brain registered that she could see through the bathroom door that Lori's curling iron was on. And she was positive that she should be on her way to school by now. Her boyfriend was supposed to be driving her, and she would have never left a fire hazard on like that, especially early 90s. So that was like her first thing that her brain registered. She's like, that's weird. And then in a moment that was both sped up and horrifically slow moving, Hazel rounded the corner and registered what she was seeing in her daughter's bedroom. There on the plush carpet in a room that was filled with the dolls and stuffed animals of a younger child lay Lori completely covered in blood. Lori gasped and she was making like breathing noises so she was still alive and her arms were kind of jerking at her side on the floor so Hazel screamed out the front door for her neighbors to call 911 and then immediately ran back to be with her daughter. Hazel found a white rope the thickness of a clothesline tied tightly around Lori's neck So she ran to the kitchen and she grabbed a paring knife and she began hacking at the rope. When she freed her daughter, it turned out this rope was kind of holding a massive wound in her throat closed. Oh my God. So her head fell backward, revealing that her throat had been completely slit just about. So at that point, Hazel was honestly trying to put her daughter back together. She was like pulling Lori into her lap and trying to like close the wound and look in her daughter's face and Lori's still alive and she's looking up at her mother and she's realizing just how very, very bad this situation was. Hazel said at that point she realized that the meeting that she had been called to was a ruse, that she had been lured out of the apartment. It all just clicked for her. And so she was crying now and she said, I'm so sorry, it was a setup. Who did this? Who did this to you? And Lori was able to wheeze. So she was still able to breathe and talk a little. And she said, Michelle, Michelle did this. And she said, I love you. And her breath started slowing down after this. It was like she got what she needed to say out. And then she just started fading So Hazel held her beloved only daughter, only child, in her arms, and there was blood all over Hazel, and she just told Lori how much she loved her, 
how she hadn't done anything wrong, that her father loved her. I know. It's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. And that God would take care of her. And she just held her until the medics came, but they weren't able to save her. Poor little baby. I know. It's just really horrifying. It's also, you guys will see as we talk about this, like, Hazel and her ex-husband did everything they could to try to protect Lori. So it's just this devastating case. On that dark, dark day, only two days before the winter solstice, 16-year-old Lori Show lost her fight, and the world became that much more dim. When someone this young and full of promise is killed in such a violent way, there are obviously so many questions to be asked. Like, how on earth did it get this bad that somebody needed to do that to a 16-year-old girl? We'll answer that horrible question as best we can in this very troubling case of teenage obsession, abuse, and jealousy gone to horrifying extremes. While Lori's last words accused one person, there would actually be a trio of young people at the center of this crime and several iterations of exactly how Lori was murdered. So big question marks about what exactly went down when you have lots of people involved in many different stories. And who exactly was the one person who ended her life? And just when you think, Andy, that justice has been served and closure delivered, there was new shocking allegations of gross police and prosecutorial misconduct, which would throw a wrench in everything that we thought we knew about the case. But we also have to examine whether those allegations were true. <laughs> So it is a big old mess today. And I won't leave you guys hanging. I'm going to tell you what I think. So you'll at least have one podcaster's opinion about what really happened out there. Big thank you to Eve T for this recommendation, which is kind of funny. I'm like literally crying. <laughs> I think I was telling Andy how horrible this one was to read and <laughs> research for. And then I'm like, but thank you, Eve, <laughs> for this wonderful story. <laughs> but seriously, Eve, this is an important story. So thank you for bringing it to my attention. And also thanks for sharing what turned out to be my primary source, the book Overkill by Lynn Riddle. So now that we have opened with how young Lori Show died, I'd like to go back and talk about her in a much more important way. Let's talk about Lori as she lived. Lori Michelle Show was born in crisis on January 27, 1975, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Lori's umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck three times and knotted twice. Oh, my God. How? It was bad. And I guess Hazel was really sick, too. Like, she had a very bad flu. So she had a fever. She was shaking. She finally gave birth to her baby, and they immediately took her away and... It was very questionable about whether or not Lori was going to pull through. I mean, my mom said that that happens way more often than we even know about, like the umbilical cord situation. And the OBs are basically magicians. Like they immediately start flipping the baby and move like ninjas to fix the situation. Like being an OB must be a very stressful. Oh my God. Type of I can't even imagine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think from that moment on, Hazel said that just right from the beginning, she knew that every day with Lori was a gift from God because she had been terrified. And it was a weird set of circumstances because the woman who gave birth in the bed next to her, she was sharing a room, had like a perfect 
absolutely perfect natural birth. Everything went great. And she was like feeling a little jealous that that woman's birth story was so great. And then six months later, she bumped into the woman's parents. So the grandparents of the baby. And they told her that the baby had died, that they didn't know it when the baby came out. He looked perfect, but he had a hole in his heart and he ended up dying only a few weeks after he was born. So when Hazel looked at Lori, who was like a perfectly healthy six month old baby at that point, she really it was just like very much hammered home into her to never take a day with her daughter for granted, which given what ended up happening, I mean, it's a good lesson for all of us that she at least really loved her and spent time with her thinking about that it could be her last every single one of those 16 years. And Lori was an easy kid to love. She was described as happy-go-lucky, kind, compassionate, passionate about animals and all living things. She was a really hard worker, but she struggled very badly with school. And apparently her parents finally got her evaluated and it turned out she had dyslexia and I think another learning disability. And despite that, despite all of her hardships, she was a very, very hard worker. But there was always a feeling that she was a little different, that she felt a little insecure. Dyslexia is so difficult. I mean, think about that. Yeah. It's very hard to overcome. And I think that this is back in the, she's in school in the 80s. And I think people were getting help, but there was not as much support and aid I still remember when we went to school that it was like you had to like go to a different classroom or something. It did. It made you feel different. And that's how she felt a little bit. But she's also was a very positive person. And she decided school's hard. It's always going to be hard for me. I'm going to follow other passions and I'm going to go into vocational training. I'm going to become a cosmetologist. I'm very passionate about those things. And I'm excited about a future like she already knew at 16 years old, what she wanted to do and was making plans for what she was going to do after graduation, which I think is very admirable. And I hope we're moving away from this, but I, I do feel like there should be an equal emphasis on vocational training as there is for going to college. I think there is now. Yeah, I feel like there wasn't so much when we were in school. I think there's a lot of educational programs that kids can do when they decide that they like maybe don't want to go to college and want to learn a specific field. Like there's actual yeah. programs now that can just help them advance in that career. And then when they are done with high school and they have their diploma or GED, then they can focus on that skill. Yes. And I think that's great because I think we should celebrate anyone finding their way in the world. Uh, yeah. Most of those vocational schools are things that as a society we need most. Exactly. And then you're not like 22 looking around with great debt. And no. Like you're like, well, I can tell you all about the Iliad. Yeah. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that she was on the right path. And Hazel and Lori had like butted heads about typical teenage issues, who she was spending time with and how she was spending that time. But for the most part, they were immeasurably close. Now, Hazel wasn't that young, but it's kind of like a Gilmore Girls type of situation. It's like mom and daughter versus the world. Lori's dad, John, was very involved in her life. They had had Lori when they were, I think, 22, 24 and I think it was like a almost like first serious boyfriend and then they got pregnant type situation. And they just kind of didn't make it work. It was like they stayed together for eight years. They tried to make it work for Lori, but it was clear that it wasn't working out. So he was involved. They co-parented very well. But Lori lived with Hazel and they were very, very close. And they were real teammates. 
they had stayed in the house after the divorce, but they both wanted to be in a different area that was like closer to the malls and closer to other stuff. So they decided to buy a condo and Lori actually got a job at the mall working in retail so that she could contribute to the mortgage. Oh, my God. I know. She was so responsible and she wanted to be a teammate for her mother. That's remarkable. Yeah. So when they moved into this condo, she had tried to make some friends in her new area. But I guess that her first group of friends, they even though they seemed originally like nice kids, ended up stealing Hazel's jewelry and a bunch of stuff from the condo. So that was the group of friends that Hazel did not like. And so I guess that Lori was having just a kind of a harder time getting used to this new group and people. I mean, it's hard to be 15, 16 in a new area. Eventually, she did connect with a girl named Rachel on the school bus who had a big group of friends. And she introduced Lori to everyone. Two of these friends in this group were older than Lori. I think that the guy in this couple, Lawrence Youngkin, was 20 and his girlfriend was 19 and her name was Michelle Lambert. Okay. So that might ring a bell. I'm also very happy that she's over 18. <laughs> so she can be punished accordingly. Yeah. <laughs> like you're an adult. This case gets real bananas real quickly. Michelle and Lawrence were a couple of good-looking but troubled young people. They have big Carla Homoka and what's-his-face, the serial killers, the Ken and Barbie killers kind of vibes. Like, good-looking if you squint at them, kind of. He is very late 80s, early 90s, mullet, blonde hairdo. But people thought they were cute. They had a very, very bad relationship. Michelle had been actually born Lisa Michelle Lambert on September 9th, 1972. And she was the oldest of, I think, four or five kids. And her parents were pretty strict and religious. Lisa's parents reported that she had been a good kid. She was somebody that helped with her younger siblings. They said that she cared for an elderly aunt after she had a stroke, like went and stayed with her for a week and took care of her when she was younger. She had been a bright and good student, but at some point in high school, it all fell apart. She started to bristle at her parents' discipline. Her grades fell. I guess during this period of like 10 years too, her mother had also given birth to two stillborn babies. Wow. Oh. Yeah, which is, of course, extremely traumatic for an entire family. Yeah. And how many other siblings did she have? I think that she had three younger brothers who survived. But then, of course, there were the two children who were, yeah, stillborn. So there was a lot of trauma. There was also some suggestion that maybe she had been molested. This comes out far later. So she goes by Lisa Michelle. So we're going to call her Michelle in this. But... We have to watch everything that Michelle says with a grain of salt because she doesn't always tell the truth. So much later, she would say that she was sexually molested, which is possible. By whom? It was like kind of vague. It was kind of implied that it was maybe somebody in her family. And like later on, her family issued a statement that it never happened. But of course, a family would say that. Yeah. <laughs> it did happen too. So her whole family ended up stepping away from her, I think, at some point because of some of the things that she said. There was also her mom said that she did believe that she was getting bullied herself at some point. But you're going to see that the narrative is always from Michelle, that Michelle is a victim and everyone's out to get Michelle. Okay. One thing is true is that 
where her life made a real downturn was when she met her boyfriend, Lawrence Youngkin. So she was 16 years old, and she said that she fell in love at first sight with Lawrence. He was a lifeguard at a swimming pool. And she said she walked in to go swimming, and bam, it was over. He was also a similar age. He was 16 or 17. And apparently one of the first things he told her was that he didn't like the name Lisa so that she was going to go by Michelle from then on. Uh, Okay, fucking rude. Yeah, so that's when she became Michelle. And Lawrence did have, a, obviously, a lot of control over Michelle. That's like literally just like figuring out how much control you have over someone being like, yeah, I don't like your first name. You're going to change it. You're going to go by your middle name now. And she goes, okay. I mean, it's perfect for someone who, like, who wants to control you. Yeah, and I 100% believe her allegations as far as what happened with Lawrence. And we'll get into why. So Michelle just was completely head over heels for him right away. And it should be said, though, that Michelle and Lawrence have very different recollections of their first experiences together, as do people around the couple. So everybody has different opinions about how this relationship went down and who was really the abuser in it. And Lawrence basically said, oh, I was just saying I liked her middle name. It wasn't that controlling. He said that he was equally in love with her and that she controlled him, that this was a very equal situation. Michelle would also later claim that, now this is where we're going to get into trigger warning for sexual assault, that Lawrence raped her on their fourth date, that they were hooking up and she told him to stop and he did not. She said that she was confused. She was hurt. She was angry with him. But because of how she had grown up and because of the religious upbringing, she thought that if you had sex with somebody, you had to marry them. Yeah. It's not far from what they say. Exactly. So she was like, I'm going to make this work with Lawrence. And she said that the very next day after he raped her, he brought her roses and he promised to marry her. And he said, I'm going to take care of you. We're going to get married. We're going to stay together. It's so sad that that can get confused that a partnership and a union can get so confused with being raped when when someone's young and impressionable and following. She just didn't know that there could be another way. No, it's so sad. It's really sad. And now, of course, Lawrence says he never raped her, but I don't believe him and we'll get into reasons. Like, as we unpeel this onion, we'll see why I don't believe Lawrence. I'm pretty sure I can already see that the onion's rotten from when he (laughs) made her change her name. So it's all good. Yeah, it's already, it's fried up. It's a blooming onion right now. And we're just picking the pieces and dunking them in the aioli. That metaphor didn't really work, but I walked all the way down the flank. No, because blooming onions are like delicious. Delicious. Oh, he's a rotten onion. The one in the basket that you forgot about until it's (laughs) like on the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Michelle claimed later that Lawrence was physically abusive. And on at least one occasion, Lawrence's mother did recall seeing Lawrence hitting Michelle, though, of course, it's his mother. So she was saying it was an accident. But there was also a lot of people who recall Michelle screaming at Lawrence constantly, Michelle hitting Lawrence. And many people thought that he was henpecked, for lack of a better word. That's the word they used, I think, in the description, that they believed that Michelle was the one in control of this relationship. I really don't know if that's the case because there was just a lot of things that 
happened that seemed like it was for Lawrence. Like Michelle's friend said that she had naturally dark hair and she started dyeing it bleach blonde and wearing a ton of makeup. And that was not her before Lawrence. Okay. And she told her friends that he made her dye her hair. He made her dress like that. He made her wear makeup because that's how he wanted her to look like a Barbie doll. Okay. But there's a lot. This is just a really, really, really toxic and bad relationship all over, I think, on everyone's part here that should have been stopped. And I don't think at this point, I think both sets of parents did not want this relationship going forward. No. But at that age level, they're both over 16. It's just really hard to keep kids apart. You can't forbid them from seeing someone. I mean, you can, but they're going to want to see them more. Exactly. So eventually, Michelle moved in with Lawrence's family. I think that maybe it was because her parents found out that she was sexually active for whatever reason, or there was just fighting. She was kicked out of her parents' home or she voluntarily left. It's also she said, she said, because I think her mom said that she just dipped out on them. But of course, Michelle told Lawrence's family that she had been kicked out and she had nowhere to go. So she had to move in with them. So now Michelle's living with Lawrence's family. And apparently the fighting between the young couple was so bad, screaming constantly, that the Yunkins were asked to move out of their apartment complex. Their landlord said, we're not doing this anymore. You're out. Oh, my God. Now, by this point, the kids were over 18 years old each. And Lawrence's family told them, you got to get your own place to live. You got jobs. You got to rent your own place because we're not doing this with you. And we're not going to move into a new place and have you guys ruin that, too. So you want to be adults who live together as a couple? You get your own place. So they did. They also got engaged. But the toxic abuse continued on. Like I said, both families wanted an end to this relationship because obviously it was bad. Apparently, Lawrence had also assaulted at least one or two of Michelle's little brothers at some point, too. So... This is not everyone's dream for who their daughter brings home. This is like toxic with a capital T and horrifically abusive, at least one way direction, maybe both. So Lawrence told his parents that he had eventually realized this, that this was a toxic relationship, that this was bad for both of them. He could not stay with Michelle anymore. So he called his mother, Jackie, and he asked her if he alone could move in with them. And Jackie was over the moon, of course. Come home. We'll take care of this. Like, we'll heal you. You'll get better. Don't go back to that girl. And according to Jackie, Lawrence's mother, Lawrence did seem happier. He seemed healthier. It seemed like he had really put the relationship with Michelle behind him. Though, Jackie said, Michelle continued to call day and night. So she was calling the Yunkins house all hours of the day. She was threatening to kill herself if Lawrence didn't come back to her. It got so bad that Jackie eventually told Michelle that if she continued to call, that she was going to call the police and have her arrested for harassment because she wouldn't leave him alone. And if he's doing better, it's like, yep. So she's like, he's doing better. He seemed like he was okay and she was excited when he started dating a new girl she was sweet jackie thought but a bit young because the new girl was 16 year old Lori show oh no so how old is he at the time 20 that is not okay no the age gap like with certain ages is not acceptable 
doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter what the situation is, but a 20-year-old dating a 16-year-old, it's like not, you're not in the same world. You're not at the same maturity at this point. Agreed. And I don't know why there wasn't like anyone put a stop to this. I think at the beginning, at least for Hazel, it didn't seem very serious because he had been part of this friend group. So he had been around with a bunch of other kids that were all in this like group of kids. So I don't know if she immediately realized what was going on and that they were starting to get more serious and date each other. Because they were like always with other people. They were always like in a group, it seemed like. That's like a very good buffer. (laughs) It is. And so Lori had met this whole group through her friend Rachel. But and, And at the time that she met everyone, Lawrence and Michelle were kind of already getting on the outs. They were not exactly the perfect couple that people had previously thought they were. Obviously, there was some cracks. And Michelle and Lori had never really gelled either. Hazel said that the first time she ever heard about Michelle was when Lori came home and she was upset because she had told the group of people that she was interested in modeling and that she wanted to do modeling and cosmetology as a career. And I guess Michelle had been really rude about it. It was like, there's no way you could ever model. You are not attractive and your hair, ew. And so like Hazel was just like, you can do whatever you want to do. Don't let some stupid person who doesn't even know you tell you what you can and can't do. And like they had had a talk about this specific rude person. So that's all really like at this point, Hazel knew about Michelle. And at some point... Michelle was out of the picture. He's still hanging out with the same group. I'm sure that Lauren seemed attractive. I mean, she didn't like Michelle, so who? what did she care? She wasn't friends with her. And I guess at some point, they just ended up getting like a little, a little bit more romantic. And we're going to get into that in a second. So basically, Lawrence is like gravitating more towards Lori. Michelle ended up gravitating toward another new friend, a high school senior named Tabitha Buck. Tabby had had like a rough go of life herself. Her parents had what sounded like an on-again, off-again relationship. Lynn Riddle, the author, gets all into Tabby's life story. And it's like her parents were a second marriage. And then her mom like went back to her first husband and then went back to her second husband. And then they were in Alaska and then they're in Pennsylvania. And then it was almost hard for me to follow exactly what went on in this young girl's life. So it wasn't like that there was any big instances of abuse, at least that I know of. But it was more just like she never found footing in life. She was like always the new kid. They never had money. They were like just barely making ends meet, getting into like an apartment here or a trailer there. But like it was always a struggle for Tabby. And I think at the time that everything goes down in this, she was living alone with her mother, kind of like Lorraine Hazel. And she was equally, I think, close to her mother in that way as well. So again, it was like it's kind of like a weird mirror image of Lorraine Hazel over here. And Tabby actually did not really know Lori. She said that she briefly remembers meeting her and that they had ridden the bus together. But what she mostly remembered about Lori was how much Michelle hated her, especially after Lauren started going out with Lori. Tabby said she didn't really know that much about Michelle either when they started being friends. She was new to the area and kind of glommed on to the same friend group that Lori was kind of breaking into as well. And she said that everything she thought she knew about Michelle was a lie. She wouldn't find out until much later 
that Michelle's parents were married pillars of the community because Michelle had told Tabby that her mother was a drug-addicted sex worker. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Tabby reflects upon this later and is like, I didn't know Lori, and I think deep down I didn't really know Michelle either, to be honest. For what it's worth, Tabby's mother, Joanne, did not approve of Michelle and didn't think that Tabby, who was a high school senior, should be hanging around with her 17-year-old daughter. So because like, Michelle's 20 at this point, I think. She also was like, hey, she is a high school dropout. I don't know if Michelle was working at that point. And she's pregnant. Maybe you shouldn't be hanging out with her because that's right. Michelle was pregnant. Hey guys, today we want to share a great true crime show called Tapes from the Dark Side. Each season, our friend host TZ hones in on one case and uses in-depth primary research to explore what happened and why. The show features some unbelievable audio from 911 calls, police interrogations, court proceedings, and so much more. Andy and I love the way TZ tells a story. The production is immaculate and the integration of primary source audio is really unique. But what we like about the show is how TZ gets into the real human, systemic, and ethical implications of each case. I mean, he really gets into the nitty gritty and does not shy away from any of the atrocities. If you like in-depth cases, deep research, and incredible, sometimes bone-chilling audio, Tapes from the Dark Side might be just for you. So check him out wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, with whose baby? Well, it's supposed to be Lawrence's. The reason why Michelle was so desperately trying to get Lawrence back or get in touch with him was because she was indeed pregnant. Now, there would be some question about the baby's paternity because she had also briefly dated somebody else. But I believe that there was a paternity test taken later on, and I do believe it's Lawrence's baby. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he got out, and now he's right back in. Like, literally in. He was in. Now he's really in. From Hazel Show's perspective, her daughter Lori had very briefly dated Lawrence, and she said that actually how the relationship started according to Lori was that he was bummed out that things didn't work out with Michelle and they ended up like talking about it. And so at first it was just like uh, checking in, talking about feelings. And then one thing led to another. And Hazel said that their first few dates seemed like just like platonic kid stuff. Like they went to the mall together. They went for a swim at Lori's grandfather's pool. And obviously the family was around. So it seemed Innocent. However, one night, Lori was supposed to go with Lawrence and her dad to the fair. And for some reason, John couldn't make it or he didn't show up. So she came back that night and she was in a really, really bad mood. She was mad at her father for not showing up. And Hazel wouldn't find out until a while later why exactly Lori was so upset. But only like, I think a couple days after that night that they went to the fair, Michelle Lambert called the show's condo and Hazel ended up answering and she ended up screaming at Hazel that she was pregnant and that Lori was, forgive my language, fucking her boyfriend. Who she was pregnant with. Yeah. She was pregnant with. She was like, so Hazel was like, look, I don't know you. Stop screaming at me. Don't worry. Like, you can have him. Like, we're sending him on back to you. And she hung up the phone and Lawrence was out. They were at the apartment complex together. 
So she went outside to Lawrence and Lori and was like, Lawrence, your girlfriend called. She is pregnant. I hope you knew that. And this relationship is over. Like, Lori doesn't need to be involved in any of this. You need to deal with Michelle. You need to deal with your parents. You need to talk to her parents. You need to talk to a counselor, probably. I know, because, like, woman to woman, too, it's like if someone calls and tells you that and she's 20 and she's nearly a teen pregnant situation, I feel like as a mom and as a woman and as, like, a single mother, too, like, you would be definitely feeling for that person as well. Like, there's no way to not have empathy for this young girl who might be troubled but also is just freaking the fuck out. Clearly. And that's what Hazel felt like. She's like, you need to get your life straight. And then she's also protective over her own daughter. She's 16 years old. She doesn't need to be a stepmom over here. Yeah. This got ratcheted up real quick. And... Lori's was totally fine with ending the relationship. She had no desire to continue things with Lawrence. She did not want to get into Michelle's crosshairs at all. According to Hazel, she was not into it anymore. So it didn't matter. It was like, good, you move on. Like, Lawrence seemed to agree. He was like, yeah, I got to deal like, with my stuff. Like, it wasn't a big deal. They also had only been dating for about a week. I read one source that said, like, they dated eight days and another one that was, like, ten. But still, we're talking less than ten days of, like seeing each other. This is not a grand love affair that anyone is sad is ending. And so Hazel thought, good, she's not dating that older boy. I think there was, at the time of Lori's murder, she was dating like a nice high school boy too. So like she's moving on. And Hazel thought that that was it. That was the end of it. All was well. But all was not well. And this was not even remotely the end of the story, unfortunately. In early July, pregnant Michelle started a campaign of terror and relentless bullying against Lori. It's not Lori's fault. None of this is Lori's fault. This is your ex-boyfriend's fault. 100% we say this all the time. And also, they weren't even together. This is not even like Lori was the other woman. They had been broken up. She's not a woman. She's a child. She's a child. Yeah, the other child. Yes. So Michelle would call the show's condo around the clock. If Hazel or Lori answered, she would scream obscenities at them. They began to have to leave the phone off the hook. They said when they went to bed at night, they just left the phone off the hook because otherwise she would call all night. She would just never let up. Where are her parents? She's not living with them, remember? She's with Tabitha. No, she's in like, I think they lived in a trailer that she had shared with Lawrence and then Lawrence moved back in with her. Oh my God. Okay. I think she's 19 or 20 at this point. So she's like 19 hovering around maybe turning 20 soon. But like she's young. She's pregnant. She's hormonal. She is completely unhinged. She would go and stalk Lori wherever she was outside of her house, especially at the mall where Lori had a job. She would try to attack her physically when she was coming and going from her job at the mall. Michelle called Lori's father, John, at his own house to tell him that his daughter was, quote, a slut and a whore who fucked my boyfriend. Wow. And at this point, Lori is feeling so much shame. She's scared. But also, if you can remember what it's like being 16, the fact that somebody is telling your parents that you had sex, you're also getting outed. (laughs) There's a disapproval there. And so, of course, Hazel and John were like, 
it's okay. Whatever happened is okay. And it was not okay. And Lori broke down and we're going to get into another trigger warning territory here because she said that she didn't want to have sex. And that night at the fair when John couldn't make it, Lawrence had raped her in his van. What? Yeah. So that's why I was like, I don't believe anything this man says. And I believe that Michelle was correct because apparently this must be an M.O. Because again, it's looking like it was like fourth date territory. So this is the sick fucks move. So now, of course, John and Hazel want to press charges. But Lori's like, no, it'll just make it worse. Please don't. Like, I don't want anything else to do with these people. Will it make it worse, though? Because I feel like then there would at least have been police record of him raping her. She was like hysterical. Of like course, she did not want to press course. charges, of course. So they're like, and also it's very tricky territory. Like because people don't believe women and because like she just was like, I don't want this to be a thing. And you can't like if it's your kid, you have to weigh the options of getting them help or like also re-traumatizing them by go through the justice system and talk about what happened. So I can understand from a parent's perspective why they didn't push her to report this. But it was really bad. I mean, her parents had to take turns escorting her to work. She was at this point 16 years old and she could drive herself to work, but she was so scared. Going to someone's work is a real low blow. It is. And what was shocking to John and Hazel was that even when they were there, Michelle wouldn't back down. She would scream at them. So if they're like walking her in the door and she's like at the mall hanging out with Tabby or whoever her friends are, she would scream at them, your daughter's a whore, your daughter fucked my boyfriend. And like, they were like, back up. Like, you were talking to a kid. What is your problem? Like, they couldn't believe that she just had these like brass balls and just in front of everyone, in front of parents, it didn't care. Like, she was going to go after her. So one time Michelle was actually with Lawrence when Hazel and Lori and another friend of Hazel's ran into the couple at a farmer's market and Michelle started harassing Lori again. And Hazel said it was really sick because even Lawrence like looked like, ooh, it's two girls fighting over me. Like he was like into it. And of course she knew what happened to her daughter. So when Michelle wouldn't stop screaming and trying to get in Lori's face, Hazel straight up said, Michelle, if you want the truth, if you want to know what really happened, your boyfriend raped Lori. And if you don't stop this behavior, we're going to go to the police and we're going to bring charges against both of you. Good. You for harassment and him for rape. So keep it up. Keep it up and we'll go straight to the police. And that did seem to work, at least for a few weeks. The show's guard went down enough that I think Lori was going back to work on her own again. And in November of 1991, witnesses say that Michelle attacked Lori. Basically, she was outside of the mall and a car pulled up. Michelle jumped out and started beating Lori. Who's driving the car? I mean, I'm sure it was one of her friends or Tabby or Lawrence, probably. So they're an accomplice to this. Yes. And she's beating this 16-year-old girl up and she's screaming. And people saw this. There's witnesses. You ruined my life. You ruined my baby's life, she's saying to Lori. And Lori was taller than Michelle, but she wasn't fighting back because Michelle was six months pregnant. And she was, like, just letting her attack her until finally a security guard came running out of the nearby Burlington Coat Factory and put an end to it. And she got in the car and, like, screeched away. And, of course, Hazel was called. And Hazel and John Show were like, this is it. We're done here. We're going to the police. And they made Lori go to the police. Now, I don't think they brought in the rape stuff. I think it was just they left it at 
assault. This woman, I mean, she's 19 or 20 years old at this point. This woman is assaulting my 16-year-old. She is like stalking. She's beating. She's screaming. She's calling. We're done here. So they filed charges. And I don't really know what happened with those charges. It didn't seem like they really went anywhere. She wasn't arrested. I mean, this isn't new. They probably were like, "Uh, it's just a cat fight. It was filed, though. To your point earlier was at least there is a record of trying to get assistance from the police in this unhinged woman that's attacking their child. And this is what I said earlier was like, they did everything right. They're walking her to work. They're making sure that she has somebody to talk to and they're open with her and they're trying to protect her. They're taking her to the police. They're trying to get involvement from the authorities to protect their child. This is not a situation where this child was murdered and the parents hadn't done anything to protect her. They did everything. Yeah. And so they were hoping at this point because they didn't hear from Michelle after they filed the charges and she was aware of it. I don't know exactly what went down. She wasn't arrested, but they must have at least contacted her to tell her stay away from this girl, because if you do this again, we will actually arrest you. So she knew about it. And I think at that point, the shows were kind of hopeful that everything was going to be fine. They knew she was going to have to have her baby at some point. So they're like, she's going to have her baby. And then hopefully she'll be so busy with being a mom that she can't remember this horrible campaign of obsession and jealousy and hatred that she is launching over Lori. So they were looking forward to hopefully a quiet Christmas season. But they did not know that far from being wrapped up in the joys of your last trimester of pregnancy and getting ready for impending motherhood, Michelle was more obsessed than ever and especially wanted revenge now that Lori had brought the police into the situation. So only about a month after Lori Show reported Lisa Michelle Lambert to the police for assault, Hazel Show found her daughter covered with blood on her bedroom floor clinging to life. And with her last breath, she told her mother she loved her and she told her that Michelle was the one who had done this to her. So now we're back to the beginning and the horrific shock that Hazel Show is now in. Her 16-year-old daughter, her only child, had been brutally murdered. She said she was like they had pulled her into the other room. At first, they thought she had done it because she's covered with blood. And obviously, it's a whole scene. And so she's like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Somebody did this to my child. And then they pulled her into another room. And then she realized like through this like fog that they weren't taking her out, that the medics weren't taking her to the hospital. And she like realized at that moment that she had died. I mean, it really brought her and her ex-husband together. This horrible grief, this shock, they were completely aligned. Who else are you going to talk to? There's nobody else who can understand your loss. So they were horrified, angry, sad, outraged. They were so mad at the police for not intervening. Like somebody, it's like, we tried so hard to protect our child. What were you doing? The fact that Lori had been murdered in her own house, in her own bedroom, the place that she was ostensibly supposed to be the safest in all the world. It's really sickening. So given the prior history of violence and her last words, the police definitely knew who they were looking for. That wasn't a question. They just had to locate them now. 
So it took the whole day, but they ended up tracking down Michelle Lambert, Lawrence Youngkin, and their friend, Tabby Buck, at a bowling alley at 10 p.m. that evening. So initially, the police did not know who Tabby was, and they were not looking for her. They were looking expressly for Lawrence and Lisa Michelle. But when they saw that Tabby had a big old scratch down the side of her face that looked curiously like a defensive wound, they said, yeah, we're going to need you to come on down to the station, too. Tabby, Michelle, and Lawrence were all separately interviewed, but they gave the police the same story about how they had spent their day. They claimed that Lawrence and Michelle had picked up Tabby to take her to school around 6.20 in the morning. And then it's like this very convoluted story about how, like, they went to Kmart and then he went to McDonald's while the girls were in the Kmart and then he came to pick them up, but then... Michelle had left her purse in the Kmart, so they had to go back to the Kmart. And then he thought that one of his wheels was loose or something, so it was driving funny. So he pulled into a different McDonald's parking lot, and and he was checking it, but then the key broke off in the door. And then, oh, my God. It's this whole long, convoluted story. And then they said that this is what Tabby said, quote, to the police about how she got this scratch. She said, these two Puerto Rican girls appeared, I'm not sure whether they got out of the car or how they arrived there, but they started saying things to Lawrence. They were saying like, hey, you and such like that. And then Michelle said something to them and they started calling us whores and sluts. One of the other girls had hit Michelle in the mouth, Tabby Buck told the police. I told her Michelle is pregnant and that she was to knock it off. And the other one hit me in the face with keys or something. And that's how I got the cut on my face. So they created this story, which, by the way, these fucking assholes. They told the exact same story, all three of them, to the point that the police were very suspicious that they all had exactly the same details and exactly the same, like, timestamps about this convoluted day before they dropped Tabby off. Except for the one thing is, is that, like, Tabby says Puerto Rican girls and, like, Michelle said Mexican girls and, like, Lauren said, like, Latin girls. It's like, guys, Jeez. get your, like, racial slurs <laughs> right. <laughs> You fucking dickheads. Your racism is showing. <laughs> like, unbelievable. I know. I was like, really? Okay. All right. Just the level of human is just low. So this, of course, was completely made up story to make sense of the fact that there were some injuries on the girls. Wow. So then Tabby did get to school an hour late. So the police are like, these three people did it. We know that. And we just have to get it out of them at this point. Now, Tabby was only 17 years old, so the police had to release her into her mother's care. But they could keep Michelle and Lawrence there all night, interrogate them as long as they wanted, and eventually they cracked. So Michelle rolled first, and it was one of those classic, like, the story slowly comes out through a pile of lies. We've talked about this before. It's like when people have cheated, and they're like, I was just talking to somebody. And then they're and like, we were sexting. Oh, we were just sexting, we but we didn't had sex. But we didn't touch. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we met up one time and we only kissed. We didn't have sex. Okay. Yeah, I fully raw dogged her. Like, it finally comes out. That is like the confession version of this. Like, so she's like, starts by saying, after they like tell her that she hasn't survived, that Lori's dead. They're like, Lori's dead and we think you killed her. She like tried to feign surprise and then was like, okay, well, I kind of knew this because... Tabitha Buck was the one who killed her. So she says that it's Tabitha Buck and her, her story changes. Like I was outside. I wasn't even in the building to I was 
in the hallway, but I didn't go in the apartment too. I was in the apartment and I tried to save Lori's life, but Tabitha went crazy and killed her. So that's kind of where she lands. She lands on, they were definitely going there to like prank Lori, they said. Like, you know, they didn't get along traditionally. They were going to like do something like cut her hair or something. They wanted to somehow bully her, humiliate her. You really think that's a good idea after they filed a police report on you? Yeah, that's what she's saying. So she's like, oh, we weren't going to do anything. We we're just going to like prank her or something. And then Tabby went crazy and I even tried to save Lori, but it was what's done is done. So I didn't know what to do. And now I'm scared of Tabby because she's a killer. I was afraid to turn on her. And she said that Lawrence had nothing to do with it. He didn't know that what they were planning on doing. She said that he did drop them off, but he wasn't involved in it in any capacity. So he's an accomplice. But he's an accomplice for sure. But so she says it's all tabby none me and definitely not Lawrence so when Lawrence found out that Michelle was talking and of course the police made it sound like they were implicating him in it even though she wasn't but they wanted to get something out of him obviously he was like no that's absolutely not true I didn't do anything I didn't go in there at all I didn't know what they were up to. And I wasn't really worried about it because I thought Hazel's show was going to be home. So what could they get away with, with Lori's mother there? Now, either he didn't know and he's telling the truth or he's lying and he did know. We don't know. Well, he seems to be a liar and a rapist. So, yep. So we don't know for sure if he knew that Michelle had called, which comes out later that Michelle was the one who called Hazel and scheduled that meeting to get her out of the house. So he says he didn't know that. He thought that Hazel was home, so he wasn't really thinking about it. He said that essentially the girls got back in the car and it was clear something had happened. So he ended up telling the police everything that he knew. And he also told them where they could find the bloody clothes that Tabby and Michelle had been wearing at the time of the murder. And they had dumped it in a dumpster. And so he brought them to the dumpster where it was. And it was like a whole thing because then it had already been picked up and they had to go to the landfill, but they found it. It's just, it's gross. So with the physical evidence, because it's their clothing with Lori's blood on it and the confessions, that was enough. So they arrested all three of them for first degree murder. Tabby lawyered up immediately and did not cooperate with the police at all. So. We never really heard her side of the story until much, much, much later. By this time, an autopsy had been performed and it showed that Lori had been beat and stabbed twice in the head. She also had three stab wounds in her back, one cut to her leg and dozens of defensive wounds on her hands. None of these stabs and cuts were at all fatal. Even the head ones? Even the head ones were very superficial. It was the deep neck gash that had killed Lori. Lynn Riddle described the cut in her book as a slashing cut made with several strokes of a butcher knife as if someone were slicing a turkey. Oh, God. The first trial kicked off in July 9th of 1992, and it was that of Lisa Michelle Lamberts, who was by this time a new mother. Michelle had been seven months pregnant at the time of the murder and delivered her baby, Kirsten, while she was in prison. 
the now four-month-old child lived with Michelle's parents. So good that she's with her parents. Yeah. The prosecution argued that Michelle was a known stalker of Lori shows. There was legal documentation and tens of witnesses that could testify to Michelle's harassment and assault of the 16-year-old girl. Michelle had been obsessed with seeking revenge on the teen for dating her boyfriend and the father of her child for less than 10 days. There were also a couple other girls who came forward to saying that essentially Michelle had tried to loop them into this murder plot as well, but they had said no. Tabby Buck had lacked the moral fiber to say no, the prosecutor argued, and had been dragged into the assault by Michelle, who had also concocted the ruse of pretending to be the guidance counselor to get Hazel Show out of the house and thus leaving Lori alone and vulnerable to an attack. Michelle's defense was that she was entirely innocent, that Lawrence had been the mastermind behind the murder plot. His motivation was to get rid of Lori before she could file rape charges against him. Michelle claimed that it was Lawrence and Tabby who had murdered Lori and that she had not even been in the room, which was, of course, a big departure from her original statements. The change in tune may have been motivated by the fact that Lawrence had cut a deal with the state. He had agreed to testify against Michelle and Tabby during their respective trials in order to get a reduced sentence. This, of course, was regarded as betrayal by Michelle. Lawrence was indeed the star witness, and he said that the night before the attack, Michelle had purchased rope and a ski mask. The next morning, he had driven Tabby and Michelle over to the show's apartment. While he did know that Michelle wanted to teach Lori a lesson, he did not think that anything bad would truly happen because Lori's mom was home. Now, we don't like Lawrence. He's a rapist and a liar, but his story doesn't change. So basically, like, from what he tells the police right away, all the way through this trial and through Tabby's trial, he remains completely consistent. So it's either the truth or a consistent lie. There was some funny business about this, like, note that it seemed that he wrote or there was passed back and forth between him and Michelle when they were in prison. And it's hard to tell. I thought this was kind of a red herring, but it came up at Michelle's trial that in one of the notes, it seems like he says that, like, he and Tabby did it or something. But it looks like the note could have been edited because a lot of the language is very strange and it doesn't it seems like it's trying to tell a story that's not really there and things had been, like, changed. I didn't get into the heavy with the note, but like that was the only portion of the whole thing is that there was some parts I feel like he wasn't entirely honest with the police about something. But in general, from what I read, at least his statements, it seems like they were fairly consistent the entire time. So when he picked them up after the murder, they did not immediately tell him that Lori had been murdered. That's at least what he said. He said he noticed the scratch on Tabby's face and he said that Tabby said, the bitch scratched me and that Michelle had then shown him the inside of her lip where there was some sort of injury. And she had said at that point, yeah, she kicked me in the face too. So he said that they went home so the girls could take off the bloody clothes and take showers. So they're at their house. And while Tabby was showering, Michelle told Lawrence that basically once they got into the house, that all hell had broken loose. And she said that Tabby, Michelle, and Lori had all been wrestling to try to get a knife or they had been wrestling each other when Michelle heard a hiss-like sound. 
and believed that in the struggle, her lung had been punctured. And so at that point, she told Lawrence that essentially she was like, Tabby, what do we do? And one of them said, I guess we have to put her out of her misery. But Lawrence, I don't think, said who or didn't know exactly who was the one who took the knife and killed Michelle, only that he knew that one of them did it. And they said it was to put her out of her misery after puncturing her lung. So after they dropped Tabby off at school, Michelle and Lawrence threw out the bloody clothes in a dumpster. And these were the clothes that were later recovered by the police. Complicating matters about these clothes, however, was the fact that Lawrence claimed that Michelle was wearing his clothes. Because she was seven months pregnant, she had taken to wearing his larger, roomier clothes, which she was known to do. This wouldn't have been completely out of line. Also, 1991, they didn't really have the most poppin' maternity wear. So naturally, the defense is like, those aren't her clothes, Lawrence. Those are your clothes. And he's like, yeah, she was wearing my sweatpants and sweatshirt because she was very pregnant. So the defense is like, that's your clothes, bud. They weren't able to get any prints off of the knife or anything in the apartment because both Michelle and Tabby were wearing gloves, which again makes me feel like this was definitely premeditated murder and not like a prank or even a beating gone wrong if you're going in with gloves. But there's not any physical evidence tying Michelle to the murder. She claimed it had been all Lawrence and Tabby had just helped him execute her for some reason. I don't know why Tabby would be involved in this. But yeah, her hair, her blood, nothing was found at the crime scene of Michelle's. And essentially, her lawyer argued that Tabby was the one who had more defensive wounds. She had that big scratch, but then I think there was a couple other scratches on her body. Well, Michelle had just a little bruise on her leg and then like some sort of small injury. So he's like, look, she's not the one with marks all over her. The very small injuries that she had, because they extensively photographed every part of her body, were just normal things that you can get from just living. And about her statement, to the police early on, Michelle said that she had lied to protect her baby daddy, that he had convinced her to take the rap for him because he said that he was a 20-year-old guy. He could be looking at the death penalty, but they were going to take mercy on a young pregnant woman. So she needs to take the rap for him and she'll probably like get off and it'll be fine. But he would be screwed. So that's what she's saying on the stand. She's saying that it was all Lawrence. Tabby apparently helped him commit this murder, but I had nothing to do with it. In closing, the prosecutor brought up Michelle's well-documented harassment and assault of Lori. Witnesses who had heard Michelle say she wanted to kill Lori, as well as a neighbor of the shows who testified to seeing two slight figures, women, likely and definitely not Lawrence's over six foot tall frame leaving and running away from the apartment complex. The prosecutor hammered on Michelle's lies and ever-changing story and there was of course one other person who testified who was very convincing in my opinion extremely trustworthy and that was Hazel Show because the big part of this is that she named her killer. Lori named her killer. So the devastated mother bravely testified about the worst day of her life and her daughter's last words. 
which of course was not Tabby and was not Lawrence. Lori had said, Michelle, Michelle did it. So it's kind of like a, who do you believe? Do you believe that those were really Lori's last words, which I find Hazel to be very believable? Do you believe Michelle or do you believe Lawrence? Now, Tabby refused to participate. She would not testify against Michelle even for a reduced sentence. So she is not involved in this. She is refusing to cooperate on pretty much every level, except for in her own defense. So we don't have anything from Tabby. It is really just down to he said, she said. Who do you believe? Because again, this was actually, this is a bench trial, meaning that she chose not to have a jury of her peers. She decided to go straight with a judge. Well, that judge chose to believe Hazel and maybe by extension Lawrence. Lisa Michelle Lambert was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. At the time in Pennsylvania, that meant no parole at all. So this is an LWOP. Now, I believe, again, Michelle was only 19, maybe 20 at the time of the crime. That is a long ass life sentence. Yeah, especially when you just had a baby. When you just had a baby and you just found out now that you will never see that baby in a place that's not a prison. So next up was Tabitha Buck's trial. The prosecution stuck to basically the same story that they had for Michelle's trial. The two girls had killed Lori while Lawrence was in the car. Lawrence testified with the same story he had told at Michelle's trial as well. Tabby's lawyer argued that Lawrence was actually a big fat liar who was trying to wiggle out of his own murder conviction because it had actually been Lawrence with Michelle when Lori was murdered and not Tabby. After all, both Lawrence and Michelle had motive for wanting Lori dead, but Tabby had none. She barely knew the girl. In closing arguments, the prosecutor reminded the jury of the witnesses who claimed they saw the two young women exiting the apartment complex and the fact that it did not even really matter if Tabby had wielded the knife that killed Lori. In any event, she was there. She had some knowledge of what Michelle was going to do. She was wearing gloves. She did not help Lori in any way, who may have been able to survive potentially if Tabby had helped her or called for medical attention right away. And she also did not turn Michelle and Lawrence into the police even after. They were still hanging out. They were at a bowling alley together when they were apprehended. She had been at school that day. She had had ample time to alert a teacher or the authorities like that she had just participated in a horrific accident slash murder. He's like, look, it doesn't really matter who was the one. If Tabitha Buck had decided to make different choices, Lori Show could still be alive. So she's still responsible for her death in some capacity. Well, it took only a matter of hours for the jury to deliver their verdict, guilty of murder in the second degree. Despite the fact that it was second degree murder and that Tabitha had been only 17, a minor at the time of the crime, she too was sentenced to life in prison. Whoa. Yeah, which I guess at the time in Pennsylvania was the mandatory sentence for any murder charge. Hazel's show was sitting directly behind Tabitha's mother, Joanne, at the sentencing hearing. She leaned forward to comfort the crying woman. She reportedly said, I'm sorry either of our daughters ever met Michelle Lambert. She said that in a way, Joanne had lost her daughter too because she was in life in prison forever without the possibility of parole. Days after Tabitha's sentencing, Lawrence Youngkin pleaded no contest to third-degree murder and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. The story 
is unbelievably not over, however. Michelle's appeals process brought up some crazy allegations and it would cast her pleas of innocence in an entirely new light. Both Tabitha and Michelle ended up in the same women's prison, but for the most part were able to avoid one another. Well, Tabitha kept her head down, worked in the kitchen, got her GED, and then tutored other women studying for their GED and was essentially on very good behavior. Michelle was not quite the same. She reportedly caused a lot of issues while being incarcerated to the point where when Tabby entered the prison, all of the guards were eyeballing her and watching out for her because, and they told her later that it's because they assumed that she was going to act like Michelle because they were associated with one another. Michelle was transferred to a different prison in 1993, which was, of course, a relief for Tabby. It was at her new prison that Michelle struck up what was allegedly a consensual sexual relationship. Well, we'll get into that with a male prison guard. (gasps) Yep. There is evidence that this was a relationship because she had told people in the prison that she was horny. She told this counselor that her hormones were through the roof. And she also told um, this counselor that she was particularly close to this correctional officer. However, later on, she would say that he raped her. Now, regardless of whether Michelle was interested in this man or not, this is rape due to the power differential. I don't care whether she seduced him. This still is rape. She is literally a prisoner. She cannot consent to have sex with somebody who controls her every waking moment. Yeah. So even though people are saying that she was into this and this was some sort of orange is the new black type of relationship, and maybe she's going a little too far by saying it was forcible rape, I don't care. This guy should have known better. And we need to stamp this type of rape out and behavior out at every possible turn because this happens all of the time. Like forcible rape, inappropriate abuses of power, in prison systems, like, left and right. So this needs to be taken seriously, and I don't really care that this guy went down for rape, and he did end up doing a year and a half in jail. That's it? Yeah, that's all he got. I'm not going to feel bad for him because you don't do that. Even if she's telling you she's consenting, she can't consent. It's like with a minor. It's also why you shouldn't fuck your employees, dude. Same things. Yeah. So anyway, she's, like, got a lot going on, Michelle. Now, in the middle of all of this, she gets a new attorney. And her new attorney says that she needs to get a new trial because she was the victim of gross prosecutorial misconduct. Christina Rainville, Michelle's new attorney, argued in a March 31st, 1997 hearing that, trigger warning guys, we're going to get back into sexual assault land, Michelle had been gang raped by three police officers prior to Lori Show's murder. And then the authorities had committed gross prosecutorial misconduct in a department-wide cover-up to make sure Michelle Lambert went away and could not bring her rapist to justice. Okay. Again, this does happen. Police officers abuse their power all of the time. This is not so far from reality that it's, unfortunately, it's not as shocking as it should be. And I'm also not going to go as far to say that this did not happen to Michelle. But the primary person that she was accusing was a police officer who had testified against her 
and was also on the record as being one of the police officers involved in trying to protect Lori at the mall. So she had a bone to pick with this guy already. There was a history here. And then the second officer that she accused was actually hundreds of miles away on his honeymoon with ample evidence that he was hundreds of miles away on his honeymoon when the alleged rape occurred. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, again, not saying that it's entirely impossible that maybe she misidentified one of the men during this horrific assault. Yeah. How did her attorney not cross-reference this? Yeah. I don't know. But we are going to take everything Michelle says with a grain of salt. So Michelle took the stand at this hearing and she described the bleak circumstances that led her to Lawrence and then to this murder. She said she had been molested as a child. Again, I think it was implied that it was someone within the family or close to it. She said that she had been targeted by men her entire life. Lawrence Yunkin being the greatest perpetrator. This is when she alleged for the first time. So this is when it came out that he had raped her as well. It hadn't come out before this, early on in their relationship, and that he had continued to beat her as well as emotionally abuse her and control her every movement, including how she was allowed to dress, where she was allowed to go. So I don't think any of this is off the mark or not believable at all. She said that there's at least one witness to him hitting me because Lawrence's mom saw it one time. And she's saying that he had controlled her for so long and she had done all of his bidding that when he convinced her to take the rap for him, she said, okay, because she just did what Lawrence told her to do. That's the dynamic of their relationship. So all of this stuff seems plausible to me. It seems plausible to a point that she was controlled, obviously, that she was sexually abused by Lawrence. It's plausible that she was abused by these police officers. But then she just really gets into some things that she says that I find personally offensive. Like she said that all of the occasions, well-documented occasions of the harassment were not true and that it was the other way around and Lori was bullying her. Oh my God, stop. I know. She says that Lori was the one who was calling her and she wanted Lawrence back and she was baiting her and she just wanted to be left alone with her boyfriend and have her baby. And that that time that everyone saw her assaulting her and heard her say, like, you ruined my life, you ruined my baby's life. She said it's because Lori was threatening her baby's life that she had to fight back. It's like, there's people that saw this. They know what happened here. So that's where like all of this, I'm going, oh my God, this poor girl, that's horrible. And then I'm like, what? What are you saying here? Come on. So again, this is, we're getting back into Michelle making herself the victim. She's not the person who had this murder plot. She's not the controller. She wasn't even bullying Lori show. She's the victim of bullying. And now she's in this terrible situation when she didn't do anything wrong. That's basically what she's saying. I also did not appreciate the fact, and I know that her lawyers have to do this, but her lawyers brought up an expert witness who was not the pathologist that did Lori's autopsy, but it was another doctor. And they were trying to argue that it would have been impossible based on how her throat was cut for her to speak at that moment and say essentially that Hazel Show was a liar. So like both of those are so objectionable to me that I'm having a hard time swallowing the rest of what she's saying. 
Now, on their side, there was some evidence that some shit went down with this investigation that was not totally on the up and up. For instance, one of Michelle's friends was listed in a police report saying that Michelle had told her she wanted to kill Lori, but the woman herself testified and said that she had never said that to the police. Not once. And so she was like, I 100% did not. So they're like, how did it find its way into the police report if she didn't say that? Because she did, said she did not say it. And the second bit was actually from Hazel's show when she was at this hearing listening to everything and she was starting to question what really happened. Like she thought she had closure. This is also very painful for Hazel. And I guess that all along, Michelle had maintained, like Lawrence had driven them away or like she had been in the car with Lawrence or something like whatever. And this neighbor saw the girls running in a place that was a different exit or something. It was basically like where they saw the girls. It would not make sense for where Michelle was saying they were in the car driving away. And Michelle had said that they saw Hazel like driving towards them and had like hid. And so they had like actually passed her on the road. Now, while she's watching this trial and watching Michelle speak, now this has been six years, I think, since the murder, all of a sudden Hazel was like, shit, I remember seeing them in the car. So she's like, oh my God, is Michelle telling the truth? Did this awful thing actually happen to Michelle? Like, was it really somebody else? Was it really Lawrence? And Lawrence is getting off with a slap on the wrist and he's the real killer because Lawrence is a rapist. He's a, not a good person too. And so she was like crying, but she had to go to the judge and say, now I'm remembering seeing them. And back then I said something about this to one of the investigators and they were like essentially told her just not to say anything about it because it was a better story to go with the witness that saw the girls. So Hazel, even though she doesn't want to help Michelle at all and is still convinced that it's Michelle because, of course, that's what Lori said to her, said she had to do the right thing, though, and at least tell the judge that based on when she saw them leaving the apartment complex, like maybe the witness was wrong. Maybe they saw somebody else or two completely different people. And that's, you know, a big piece of the evidence that helped convict them. Unlikely. Yeah. So Hazel's thrown for a loop. But there was also, I guess, a question about the bloody sweatpants. Now, Michelle's attorney alleged that the police had replaced Lawrence's sweatpants with a smaller pair to pin the murder on Michelle. I guess they held up these pants and they look too short for Lawrence. But wouldn't a lot of blood make them shrink? I don't know. This argument is strange to me, though, because the entire time the state had alleged she was wearing his clothes. So I don't know why they would switch them out for smaller pants if they've never tried to say they were her pants. So there was a big thing about these bloody sweatpants, too. Well, given all of this, the horrified judge, who was a... U.S. district judge ruled that Michelle's conviction should be overturned and released her immediately. Well, Lisa Michelle Lambert was not freed for very long. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the previous judge's ruling, saying that he was a United States district judge who should not have even heard the case because Michelle had not yet exhausted her appeals in state court. So, like, you weren't allowed to do that. You shouldn't have even been hearing this case. So another hearing for Michelle began in late April 1998. And this was 
the same type of hearing. They're still trying to prove that she had been set up essentially and that there's new evidence and that she needs to either be freed or get a new trial. And this time, Tabitha Buck did testify. Tabby had been horrified when she had discovered that Michelle was freed. Apparently, Michelle's attorney had reached out to her, to Tabby, and said, look, I'm getting Michelle a new trial, and we're saying that Lawrence did it, or like in some legalese, so it doesn't sound like we're pinning it on him. We're just like, we're going to show new evidence that Lawrence was the sole perpetrator, so why don't you get on our team, and you can get out of prison too. And she said that she was offended by this and disgusted because, according to Overkill by Lynn Riddle, Tabby had written back to the attorney and said that whatever new evidence Rainville claimed to have uncovered, it was simply untrue. She said she understood that her law firm was charged with doing whatever was necessary to defend Michelle, but the truth was, Yunkin was not there and did not participate in the crime. Tabby said that Michelle knew that as well as she did. She said she would not lie or corroborate Michelle's story just to get out of jail. She did not take other people's lives into her own hands, she said. Tabitha said she did not know whether Youngkin knew in advance what Michelle intended to do to Lori, but she did know for sure that he did not kill Lori. She said she would not lie and cause Lawrence Youngkin to serve a life sentence for something that he absolutely did not do. She knew too well what that felt like, she wrote to the attorney. Further, Tabitha said she resented Rainville's assumption that she would jeopardize someone else's life to make her own easier. She said that's Michelle's character flaw, not mine. She ended her letter saying there was only one truth known by her, Michelle, and God, and she would not help Michelle in any way. Whoa. Yeah, so Tabby took a great amount of personal responsibility for not stepping in and saving Lori for her participation in the murder. And because she has that kind of like, I deal with my own shit and what I've done is what I'm responsible for and I will take that. That's why she never participated with the police, why she didn't testify at trials because she was like, I'm not trying to get anyone else put away. I'm going to take my punishment and serve out my sentence and pay my debt to society because of what I've done, but I'm not throwing anyone else under the bus. But she said that when she heard that Michelle was getting out and that she was trying to say it was all Lawrence, she was like, okay, I have this. I'm going to break my silence finally because I know what happened and she's lying. And she also said it wasn't for herself because there was no way to get around her sentence. She was serving a life sentence. She was going to be in there no matter what. So there was no deals made for her testifying at all. She said that she wanted to do it for Hazel because Hazel now is thinking, was I wrong? Is this not how it went down? Like she has all these questions. I mean, it's coming back to haunt them after they thought that the case was settled. And she was like, I want to give her answers. And I also want to do it for Lori, for justice for Lori. Well, that's all nice and all, but it would have been nice if you didn't murder her. She's not exactly a hero in this story is what you're saying. Yes, she is not a hero. So Tabby testified that Michelle had told her about calling Mrs. Cho and pretending to be the guidance counselor. She had told Tabby she wanted revenge, not for dating Lawrence necessarily, although that was the first issue, but because Lori had reported the assault to the police. 
Tabby said that she was under the impression that they were going to scare Lori. But all hell broke loose when they got into the apartment. Michelle put the rope around Lori's throat while Lori fought, scratching Tabby along the way. I guess Tabby had been wearing sunglasses and they were like ripped off her face. And that maybe was where the scratch came from. Michelle said that the original plan, why she had this rope, was that she was trying to hang Lori and make it look like a suicide. That had been the plan. Tabitha said she didn't know this until they were in the room and it was happening. Michelle had told Tabby to hold Lori's feet, which she did. So to your point, again, she participated in this murder. In several steps. Yep. And while she was holding Lori's feet, Michelle began stabbing. And then eventually it did kind of go down the way Michelle described it to Lawrence. She was stabbing her in the back. They heard the hiss. And then Michelle turned to Tabby and was like, well, what should I do? Should I just put her out of her misery, essentially? And that's when Michelle started slitting her throat. So Tabby apologized profusely for participating in the murder and apologized to the shows for not aiding Lori. She said that, though, that she could not stand by and let any more innocent people go to jail or let a murderer go unpunished. So there was eight weeks of this hearing. It was a long-ass hearing. And the judge determined at the end of it that there had been no miscarriage of justice. There had been no plot against Michelle, essentially. And he upheld Michelle's original conviction. So Lisa Michelle Lambert was taken back to prison where she remains to this day. Lawrence Yunkin was paroled from prison in 2004 at the age of 33 after serving nearly 12 years in prison. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed life imprisonment sentences for minors, which I think is a very good idea. So Tabby Buck was resentenced in 2017 so that she was allowed to be paroled at some point and was indeed eventually paroled in 2019 at the age of 46. Hazel Show will never recover from the loss of her daughter, but she has channeled her grief into making real changes in the world so other mothers will not have to suffer the way she has or other children will not have to suffer how Lori suffered before her murder. Hazel campaigned for anti-stalking legislation and was successful. New laws were signed into effect in June of 1993. She hopes Lori's story will raise awareness of stalking, harassment, and bullying in teen girls. She said to author Lynn Riddle, It was like Lori's death helped to protect other people. Her death was senseless, but we tried to find something that was good. I mean, there is no good, but something that gave her life meaning. This book was published in 2012. Cell phones and Facebook grew in popularity in the years since Lori Show died. Hazel can't help but think how easily such tools could have been used against her daughter and how easy it has become for children to be victimized in modern day times. All the bullying that's going on, it brings back a similar feeling, Hazel Show said. Back then, nobody could have believed that another girl could have that within her. Now you see it. Now it's out there immediately. So even though this one... It's a really tough story to swallow. I do think it's meaningful to tell because we really do have to stamp out bullying and stalking and harassment at a very young age. Totally. I feel like even though there's negatives with it being 
so easy now, you see it a lot more and you can like call out the... I definitely think that you can see it a lot more. I think it's still going to be a huge minefield for us to deal with with our children. And I'm sure there's a lot of you parents listening or even teenagers who are going through it and how painful it can be. But at least there's records. <laughs> there's, you know, there's there's proof. I was reading a parenting column or something that it's really hard with technology to keep your kids safe in general, but also just <laughs> there's new issues that you would never have thought of because we didn't have Instagram when we were little, like your 15-year-old being miserable because she wanted to hang out with a friend and they said they weren't feeling well and they're staying home and then they're on Instagram and they're out with all of their other friends and no one invited them. And basically, like, they're going through all these different challenges that are hard for us to understand. And so I feel like there's going to be a lot of new and hard challenges, but hopefully a lot less murder. Yeah. It's harder to get away with it now. Yeah. In conclusion... Hazel Show is a goddamn hero, and let's all do our best to live in her image of protecting kids and young women and young men and everyone in the world. Yeah, and pretty much bullying across the board sucks. So if you see it, stop it. If you hear it, stop it. If you're involved, stop it. Just don't do it. Yeah, because you might end up spending the rest of your life in prison. So suck on that, bullies. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye, guys. Bye.